Hello, everyone. This is Lamar Stanley, your host of the MA Source Podcast. A quick note about today's episode. Today, I am pulling over some audio from one of our recent monthly webinars we recorded on the MA Source platform. It's John Dalton with Industrial Device Investments talking about his book that he recently published, Run to Own Equals Run to Sell. And because the content was so great, we decided to post it to this platform as well. So, if you missed the webinar, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation about operating and preparing businesses for sale. Um, it's great content on topics central to M&A Source's mission. And so I uh, hope you enjoy the interview with John. Welcome to the M&A Source podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Thanks everyone for joining us. A great turnout again to hear what I think is going to be a really interesting discussion. Um, today I'm interviewing John Dalton, the founder and managing partner of Industrial Device Investments, or IDI. And for anybody who doesn't already know John, John has a passion for industrial product companies and, and inner workings that borders on obsession and that's rivaled only by his love of UNC basketball, which by the way, I think I spied your cup, John, uh, as we were kind of getting ready for this. That's as expected. Uh, yeah, the basketball up there too. <laughs> so, Feel free to load your Duke questions up uh, for the end of this webinar for anybody listening out there. But um, anyway, he has great experiences, both good and bad, both peaks and valleys of all the businesses that he's interacted with. And he uses resources uh, of all kinds. We're going to talk a lot about those today to assist IDI's companies. And he really enjoys uh, the discussion of where a company has come from and where it is and where it's going and, you know, both investing and then preparing a business for sale. But as we'll talk about later, that kind of equates to just running the business. And so he has an, a, a really good awareness of kind of the things that owners are going for because he is not just an investor. Um, like a lot of private every firms, he's also an operator and has the experience to, to talk about it. Um, he spent time though in private equity. Uh, he did learn modeling and applied his learnings to the first company uh, that he acquired back in 2006 and plenty since. Um, so he's done acquisitions, divestitures, partnerships, global selling, um, shop floor management. Um, but basically he's, he's involved in every element of IDI's strategy. And in addition to that, I would like to, at the end, talk a little bit about IDI's community stewardship. Um, I know he's involved with their Perceptics Foundation, um, supporting their employees with three times match of their money and time. So wealth of information here. John, thank you for joining us today on the webinar. Thank um, you, Lamar, delighted to be here. Great. Well, the real reason uh, that we pulled you on today is not only because to, to kind of tap into your wealth of knowledge, but also specifically wanted to talk about uh, the book that you wrote, uh, Run to Own Equals Run to Sell. First, um, well, actually, before we get into the book, Let's back up. I kept your your uh, bio intentionally vague just because I would love if you wouldn't mind kind of going through your background and kind of what brought you into the business, you know, places you've been or, or experiences you've had leading up to IDI. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so my story starts when I was 12 and I won't cover it all in great detail, but my dad bought his first business back then 
and I had to cut the grass and paint the building and mend the fence and, and do the things you, you make your son do. And I didn't know it at that time, but that was going to generate capital for me to be able to uh, support me in buying my first company. So that was, uh, was really, uh, uh, things came full circle. Uh, but I was kind of an industrial uh, person uh, from the, from the get go. I, you know, I was the kid taking the lawnmower apart and trying to figure out how to get it back together. That eventually migrated to an engineering degree and I spent time in GE and in their industrial plastics business. Uh, that seems like a long time ago. Went back to business school and then was with Black and Decker on in the manufacturing management team for DeWalt uh, stationary power tools. So it's table saws and, and miter saws, mostly assembly, some machining. And of course that plant had a lot of motor winding. So I uh, got exposure to kind of all the basic processes of, uh, you know, they're, they're in many of the plants for the companies we work with now. Um, did spend a couple of years in private equity, learn how companies got bought and sold. And, and I'll be honest with you, I went through a lot of training and business school, and I never really understood how financial statements worked until I got with my partner on his model. And he showed me how the financial statements all connect together through the model. And, and that was a big learning for me. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I emphasize that because it's not the formal training that I think has been most valuable for me. It's the, it's the knocks along the way. Uh, but we bought some companies, a couple did very well, some did not so well, uh, but that was an open agenda at South Point. I, I worked uh, three quarters of my time on behalf of the fund and one quarter of my time worked looking for my own company. And, and my partner helped me with the financing for that company. That was what happened in 2006. We acquired out of Northrop Grumman, we acquired a small uh, company in Knoxville called Perceptics. And we still own Perceptics now. It's been 15 years. The highs have been mighty high and the lows have been kind of low as well. And uh, you know, that's entrepreneurism for you. It's, it, it's always got highs and lows. I guess at 12, I didn't realize how high and how low, but uh, that's, that's definitely the truth of it. And, and and that roller coaster, you got to make the roller coaster fun. And sometimes it doesn't seem so fun. Sometimes the stress of it all wears you out. And, I, and I've been in that too. And, uh, but it's, uh, you know, figuring out the fun pieces and what you're good at and how you can get help is the key to it all, I think. Right. And maybe that kind of leads into my next question is, you know, finding that help. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about why you wrote the book? And, you know, why would intermediaries be interested in the book about industrial product companies? And then specifically, there's, there's a lot of, you know, the, the book is obviously very heavily influenced by your industrial product experience. What do advisors need to know about those companies specifically and kind of how does that relate to the book? Yeah, so you say book and that's a big word. This is a pretty small book. So <laughs> yeah. for anybody to read it, it's, a, it's a relatively low time commitment. Uh, read and uh, you know we we I wrote the book because I wanted something that could kind of capture uh, a conversation starter for an industrial product company owner. So we use it in our marketing to uh, to try to provide a little bit of value, you know, and 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 it, and it covers a lot of ground. And people are going to pick and choose what they like and what they don't like, and that's what it's there for. So, but for us, it's really a conversation starter. For the intermediary, I, I think there's a real opportunity to use a book like this to understand that particular kind of seller. And you know, the, that's a seller that's 
for these industrial product companies. So we, we look at companies that man, typically manufacture and, and you know, it's sensors, devices, machines, equipment, measurement instruments, sort of hardcore industrial stuff, all bought by larger companies. Uh, we joke that we like to shoot with a rifle around big companies that can only shoot with cannons and shotguns. And, you know, we, we try to find those small niche markets that can support a, uh, a company of the, these size. And, and that has worked well for us. But the, the, books, the book's purpose for that industrial product company owner is, is uh, kind of twofold. It's one is to provide some value. And the second is to make the point that if you build a great company, the things you do to build a great company are the same, whether you're going to own it for 15 years or sell it next year. And, and really, in my mind, it's, it's the same. It's, it, there's, there's not a lot of difference that you want to have. You want to have a great team. You want to have metrics. You want to have your accounting uh, in, in decent shape. All those things that uh, intermediaries would come in and, and talk to owners about, then, you know, we advocate that they would be good to do when you're, when you're running the company as well. So it's, it's, but it's really a conversation starter and a little bit of value. It would give the intermediaries a chance to understand, you know, that kind of company owner a little bit. And, and what I've done in the book is take a lot of general market resources and try to apply them to industrial product companies. So you'll see things in there like, uh, like business systems, EOS, and scaling up, you know, hiring methodologies. And we use the Burke uh, assessment and, and the methods in the A, the, uh, a player book. You know, those are, those are all going to be good for any company. We just apply them to how it works in an industrial product company. Right. Well, that's, uh, that was another one of my questions here, is the book is a great, and this is kind of a plug for the book, so everyone kind of uh, listen up here if you haven't. It's a little bit of a spoiler, but the book is littered with references to other tools or other books, and, and I think that's kind of how you were able to keep it. A relatively small size but it's great in that it, it references you know if you're doing this if you're hiring go here this is what I think is the best resource if you're building corporate strategy go here and do you use all of these things that are in the bibliography because it's a pretty long list yeah no it's a long list and 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 I've got a, a bookshelf over there of, of another hundred books that that are not in it um, we don't use all of it Lamar what we do is focus in we try to focus in on what that company needs. And you know, that'll be different even between our holdings. It'll be, be different what we're doing with Perceptics here in Knoxville versus MRF up in New Hampshire. You know, the needs of the company is different. The cultures are a little bit different. The, uh, where, where they're going and how they're growing. They're, all, all those factors are different. That's why the first thing that I advocate for strategy is not planning, it's figuring out what are the right questions because I think that is the crux of, of doing great things with a company is figuring out what questions to ask. The plan is relatively straightforward after you figure out the best questions. Yeah, okay. Well, if you are an investor, uh, why is so much of the book about operating? Uh, and I think you might've touched on this a little bit, just based yeah, on- Yeah, so, you know, Lamar, we're a little different than a private equity fund in, in the sense that we are family capitalized, so we don't have time horizons. But the other thing that makes us different is we're all operators. And, you know, we can make models, as you, as you mentioned in the intro, we're, we're not shy about trying to figure out how the model will work, but we think the 
assumptions are more important than the numbers. And, and, but all of our experience is literally is in the trenches of the operations of the company. And, and we, we prefer the investment sizes. You know, we, we say it's three quarters of a million to three million in earnings. And at that size company, you, you have a fair amount of risk. It's got to grow a little bit to, in order to get out of some of that risk. And, and with that uh, size company, you usually don't have a full management team. You usually don't have a clear strategy. They're either really good at operations and delivery or really good at sales and marketing, but they're not usually good at both. And, you know, it's, it, so it's, it's an opportunity to uh, try and, and hone in on what in those, each of those uh, prospect companies might need and might want. Right. Well, on that note, Dan, um, Let's say that there's an intermediary out there who's thinking about reading your book, but they don't have the wealth experience that you've had. How, how can they use the book? So I, I just think it would be a resource on how they're, the seller of an industrial product company is going, it may be thinking or, or could think if they took the time to kind of pull their head up from operations and look at and work on the business instead of only in the business. And, you know, those are the types of things that at least from my 30 years and almost a full head of hair of experience, then, you know, that's what you need. And so these industrial product companies are probably thinking about many of those types of things. If you want to know that seller, this is a book that could tell you a little bit about that particular seller. Now, the resources, as I said, might go into other uh, markets just as well. But the, the, what, I, what we talk about, what we talk to are the industrial product companies. Uh, just out of love of that market, and that's that's what we do. Okay. Well, now diving in a little bit to the book, um, let's let's step through the areas that you highlight, and and you don't have to talk about all these. I don't want to be a spoiler for the whole book. I want people to still dig through it. But you know, strategy, hiring, sales process, capital decisions, and cash, myself, and culture. Can can you talk a little bit? You know, you don't have to go through all, but a little bit about kind of the flavor of when you're talking about these things, what you go through in the book. Yeah, so in, in those, those are the chapters in that how to run or what's what, what I think is important for running a, a, an industrial product company. And it starts with that strategy. You got to know which walls or which mountains you're trying to climb. And uh, that you do that with, with trying to help create a vision. But the idea of creating a vision with a clean sheet of paper is a pretty daunting challenge, so I try to break it up into bite-sized chunks. So first think about what questions are the, are the pressing questions for, uh, for your company. I had a mentor one time tell me that there's 300 things you need to know to run every company. There's 100 that are general for the, all companies, there's 100 that are specific to the industry, and there's 100 that are specific to that particular company. And, you know, if, if that's true, and, I, you know, I think on rough average, I would say it is, then you know you're trying to ask those questions that are getting to the hundred most important things uh, for your company and what what's going to make it distinctive and unique and how you're going to stand out from the market. That's that's strategy, right? You just want to stand out in the marketplace. The second thing is after the questions, I don't suggest diving directly into the uh, the the uh, plan. I suggest trying to talk to experts in those areas. So if you can. If you have a question and you're not sure how to tackle it, find somebody who's tackled it before. And that could be a mentor, it could be a consultant you hire, could be an industry expert, could be a, 
you know, if it was for business system, EOS calls them implementers. You know, there's a, there's lots of people out there that have tackled the kinds of things you're looking at. So I like to uh, call it, and there's a book on this that I quote in there. It's uh, it's finding the who's or who not how, and and figuring out who you could get some help for. And then the vision is pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, if you find those right questions and you start to ask and answer some, then trying to figure out where you're going, it starts to become more clear. And and then you could put it in whatever format you want, and and that makes sense. Uh, the second part is the team, and 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 I would I would like to make this the first part because it's so important. You know, when I look at a company and we look at investing, you know, you can change what your products are, you could change your markets, but it is hard to change the team. You want to build a team there, you know, that can succeed and and be able to go forward. So a big part of that is hiring. A big part of that is you know how you're going to incentivize and 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 push forward with the team. But you know, hiring is not finding pet questions and figuring out who can answer them the best. That's not a great hiring technique. So we've got some ideas in there about bringing some science to the hiring. And, you know, if you start to use that, and then you'll start to see some trends on what kinds of people are great at what kinds of jobs. And, and again, rely on some capabilities there. Uh, the selling process, in, in my world, the key to selling is the pipeline. And every time I talk to RVP of sales in either company, what they hear about from me is how's the pipeline? How healthy is it? How do you feel about it? Is it working? Because you should be able to have a circle there, a circle logic on a pipeline. You should try to project for next year on your pipeline. And you're going to need about, in industrial companies, you're going to need about three times of your weighted pipeline for your revenue. But at the end of the year, you can look back and see, did it work? Maybe we need to make our pipeline percentages more uh, more stringent for the probability, and then we'll be that we'll be more in line with that three times. So the important thing is not the list of jobs, although that's certainly important. That's a to-do list for the sales department. The important thing to me is the process of continuing to get better at understanding where we're selling and how we're selling and and what we're doing that's distinctive in the selling process and with our products and services for each customer. You know, and the money part of this really for me is is not that complicated. It's it's figuring out where you're going to put your capital, and understanding uh, where uh, where you're investing, and then are you have do you have cash? I still get an email from every company every week on where cash sits, you know, and where they think it's going to be at the end of the week. And and, and they you know some people have said, well, that's silly. That's just you know that's just one week. Well, we do modeling. We just don't do it every week. And, and we try to understand where our cash is because, you know, praying over the mailbox to try to meet payroll is not a great strategy all the time. And sometimes you get in that situation and you have to do it, but it's not proven to be, you know, a, a, a consistent strategy. Figuring out how your cash builds and where it depletes out to and what your cycle is, those are critical. I'm, you, I, hear, I see you nodding, Lamar. So, you know, you're doing that in a little larger companies, but you're still just making sure you got total focus on cash because without cash, you can't do anything. I do have a section on managing the owner, and this is from some of my learnings. I went through some real challenges uh, in, the, in the midst of uh, running Perceptics, and I ran Perceptics for 11 years. Uh, we were doing terrific, and I didn't know where we were going in the future. And, and because I didn't feel like I knew where I was going in the future, everything that was bad was taking me down farther, and everything that was good wasn't taking me up very much. So I was riding a low roller coaster 
on that and 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 it got me into some uh you know some challenges uh probably be called depression or you know what where you're where you're trying to think your way through and and i didn't know enough about that stuff to get help so i've got some ideas in there what i've seen what i've seen in other books and resources to help people because i tell you what lamar being the owner is different being the owner is hard and and it's lonely and and there's nobody else in the company that sees all across the company like the owner has to and you know that's what i try to be as a resource for our our presidents on being able to see across the company because you know they've got me they can i could be a shoulder to cry on or a, or a hand to high five with depending on how things are going but either way you got to manage that emotion and doing that uh, for an owner for an individual owner is is hard and when they don't have a, a kind of a team around them and then you extend that to the team you know culture what is culture you know that you got to have some science around that too and i try to use tools to build that up you could use a disc profile or the burke profile that we use you know there's lots of ways to look at that but when you sum up all of the individuals in those kinds of profiles you get what your culture is for a company and and uh, so uh you know we want to we want to be able to manage that and and have people really excel within the team because we understand the culture and we understand how to incentivize them and excite them as a as a part of the team uh and, and we do a bunch of other little simple things you know our organization charts are upside down and and me and the board of directors are at the bottom and the customers are at the top and 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 we like to say we prove that shit really does roll downhill in idi companies but you know it's 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 a it's a simple point there it's and we make this point over and over in lots of different ways but on the org chart you look at it and you know what's important to me is the customers at the top and I don't want to be at the top of the org chart. I like to be down at the bottom and, and walling around in that stuff and trying to help the operations and, and help our presidents improve things. And, uh, you know, that's a big uh, challenge. Culture is always a, a very big challenge and very unique to each company. So that's kind of all of the operational parts of the book. There's a, there's a second section. It's much shorter because I think it's much better covered in other books. But, you know, when you're, if you want to sell your company, what do you need to do? Well, you need a plan and you need a plan ahead of time and you got some preparation to do and you should understand a little bit about the buyers. And I got some description in there. You should understand, you know, if you're bringing in uh, debt or equity, what the impacts are to, to recapitalizing the company and, and how, what's the right way to get those things done. So I talked a lot there. Um, you know, we're, I, I just want to try to brush on a couple of things on where's in the book. And, you know, this is the stuff that's really fun for me. I love. I love talking with our presidents and our teams at the companies about how things are going and how we can make it better. I even like the grumpy ones, Lamar. You know, you get it. Sometimes the grumpy people give you your best information, and right. uh, you know, the, you get the what's not working from the grumpy people, and that's that's really worth something too. And you, you can help them too. And uh, you know, all together, it takes the whole company to build a great company, and uh, we're really excited about how do how we do that. Well, speaking of the grumpy ones, um, talk to us a little, I mean, the way you go through the book and actually the way you just did it there, it makes it all very simple. I, I like the way that you very succinctly put, you know, these specific elements of both running a business and then preparing it for sale. But where are the bottlenecks or the roadblocks or where are the places that you see, you know, if you were to put a big asterisk next yeah. to portions of the book, where would those be? 
So there's there's definite operational bottlenecks for when a company is growing. That's sort of obvious. If you if you have a company that machines aluminum parts, then you need more machining centers if you're going to grow. That kind of you know th those things are pretty pretty straightforward. But where I typically see the bottleneck on growth is sales and marketing. So I see owners who typically are not uh, sales and marketing people. They've grown up on the engineering side or they've grown up in the operations and manufacturing side and they know their product, they're great at delivery and you know they've got a good idea but they don't know how to get out in the market and stir up new opportunity and how to do that. And you know some of it is individual founders just don't want to travel. Some of it is you know they don't have a plan or they don't know how to make a plan. And uh, you know those are those are difficult challenges. You've got to find some help if it's outside your range of what you've done. But what I see is the biggest bottleneck in smaller companies is sales and marketing capacity and capability. And you got to have both to, to bring in enough orders to grow. All right. Well, one other part that really jumped out to me um, was well, I'll, I'll also say that recently we had a podcast where we talked to Sarah Burden with with Walden, and she talked about the emotions of business owners and kind of how you, you know, kind of work with owners to, to get them to the finish line. Can you talk a little bit about owners' emotions as it relates to a sale? So, you know, I've got different experiences and I could lend my ideas to that. I think somebody like Sarah probably has a much more grounded view of, of owner emotion than I do because I think she would probably have suffered through many more examples of challenge um you know honestly to me that's kind of a, a magic touch of the intermediary or the or the investment banker is you know the, figuring out the the challenges that those owners are going to go through in the sale process is no quick pro it's not quick and easy that's a that's a long thoughtful discussion on where they're going to do it and, and i think the intermediaries you know the m a source uh people that we that, that I see and I've talked about with deals is uh, terrific at that. We did a deal with John Howe uh, in New Hampshire for uh, MRF, and he was he was a he was very uh, capable at trying to manage the seller's uh, emotions, and and I was not. You know, I'm I'm always in a hurry, and and it turns out that being in a hurry is not that great of a trait for when a process that takes slow like M and A. So, you know, I, I would not consider myself to be an expert on managing owner emotions. I know when we, we have some discussions directly with the owners without, without the intermediaries, and I wish there was an intermediary to come in and help because it's, uh, you know, it, 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 that's hard work. And, and I think they, you know, they earn their money there in, in trying to help them through that process because it's usually the first time. Um, but, you know, you, you want to, you got to understand it's the largest probably the largest transaction an owner will ever do. They may only be doing this one, so they're very unfamiliar, they're nervous, they don't know who's gonna do what, they don't know why they need a lawyer and a, a, an accountant you know, working on this. They, you know, they did all that in-house before, why can't that be good enough? You know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle of, of settling them down and explaining a process that I think the intermediaries are the, are the experts at. Well, on that note, if you were talking to a business owner and you weren't in the business, or even if you are, how would you go about, how would you advise them to go about choosing an advisor? Or what, what are the questions that you feel like are the most important ones when, when trying to select that person? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's like any other meaningful partnership. 
And, and I say the word partnership and differentiate that from, you know, just uh, a salesman making a sale, even though that could be a partnership too. But this is really a partnership. You got to really be confident in that person that you're working with. So, you know, the basics of trust, do they do what they're selling, say they're going to do? Um, you know, my mom would have said, John, don't do business with people that don't have nice manners. And, you know, I think that's pretty true. I think if they're not having nice manners with the seller, they might not be having nice manners with the buyers. And the whole Annie Mary, that whole job is about bringing everybody together, not pushing them apart. So I would find the people who are good at bringing together. I think that's that would be what I do. Yeah, I agree. Well, speaking of bringing together too, uh, I mentioned that your Perceptics Foundation at the beginning, uh, and, and that's really something to me that I feel like uh, was re really interesting about you all's story. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What can you tell us about the foundation and kind of how it was born? Yeah, so this is, you know, maybe the thing I'm most proud about, and I'm not proud because I made it up. I stole it from a customer I had when I was selling for GE in the 90s. And they, we dressed it up a little bit and made it a little bit different. But here's the basic mechanics, and, I, and I'd, be, I'd be delighted to talk to anybody who wants to talk about this because it is a real point of pride for me. Um, we sponsor employees of where they give their time and money. So if, uh, if, if an employee here in Perceptic strokes a $2,500 check to the homeless shelter downtown, then uh, the Perceptic's foundation, within some guidelines and maximums, triples that to give $7,500 to that to the homeless shelter. Now, that's a huge check for somebody to give. I mean, that's a big, that's a big give for somebody within the company to be uh, making a $2,500 donation. They're not doing that unless they absolutely love the mission and the, and the vision of where that homeless shelter is going. So the foundation follows them and makes it bigger and better and, and more. Uh, so uh, we do that. And then, and then we also, uh, part of what makes it available to everybody is it's not just the giving of money, it's the giving of time. So if they give 25 hours to that homeless shelter, they get $100 of credit per hour, they turn in the paperwork, and the foundation comes behind it with a $7,500 uh, donation. So we're really, we're really working to broaden the impact of our employees, and, and, and the, employee, the, the companies put in the money. Now, we call it the Perceptics Foundation. That's just because it was the first company. Uh, so the other companies participate as well. The all the companies put in money, and that goes out to all the employees in all the companies. And and we uh, we really made some meaningful differences in uh, in Knoxville. We built two habitat houses where the employees have done most of the work, and based on that number of hours, the the foundation paid for all the materials. So one of our folks wanted to do a Perceptics neighborhood. We we tried to do a, a Perceptics cul-de-sac, and we really have to do uh, only houses spread out and uh, Perceptics is a little bit smaller company these days so that's a tremendous amount of work even when we we're up at 60 people that was a, a an incredible uh, a, a work, amount of work and and it's just just a, an insane amount of uh, organizing and and much less getting out to the house and doing the work but you know when you're uh, when you're out on a habitat house pounding nails to put the sheeting onto the roof and and you're doing that with maybe somebody who you don't work with very much or you don't like, uh, you know, there's a different kind of relationship that all the employees get in that, or I get with those employees, in, you know, and, and, and get, you get a, you know, kind of a whole new way of looking at things. And, and so the, the Perceptics, 
we don't talk about numbers a lot. I will here just because I think it's useful to give some scope. We've just passed 1.2 million in matching donations uh, from the from the companies. So we're 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 out to have a uh, you know an impact. And and frankly, Lamar, it's just I don't think the government's going to fix everything. So businesses have to do a meaningful stake in in being able to have a part in their community and 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 trying to help the community and community stewardship. So that's a big a big uh, effort for us. It doesn't have anything to do with my agenda. It's not about my faith or my politics or my wife. It's about, you know, what that employee sees as important. And that for me is the business reason to do it because it creates a kind of a, a pride in company that's just different. Yeah, I think that's a really smart model uh, and really interesting. And I tend to agree with you. I feel like we all have to pitch in um, to solve a lot of problems which the government can't. Um, all right, we, we've gone um, over 30 minutes now, so I do want to allow for a little bit of time um, for anybody listening who has any questions. But before I do, can you tell us if anybody wants to find the book, where, where do you find it? So just go to our website, and there's a Run to Own tab, and uh, click that. It's free. We're not charging for it. It's the best value you'll ever get uh, based on how much you pay for it. Uh, I do think there's some value in there, uh, so please, uh, please do give it a read. If you have any comments or any companies you'd like to talk about, uh, my focus is industrial product companies, but uh, my business card is printed inside that book. And uh, if you'd like to call my cell, that's my real cell number, you'll get me answering the phone. Uh, or if I'm on a call, then, uh, then I'll get right back with you. So appreciate the uh, opportunity very much to uh, speak with the group here, Lamar. Lean on Chiara now to, to feed it. I'm not sure I'll be able to see the questions. Um, I have some pulled up, and um, if y'all will actually check your chat section of the GoToWebinar okay. sidebar, um, John's wife Sandy had sent me the link to share with y'all, um, so you can click there and download the book as well. Okay, gentlemen, we have our first question. Could John elaborate on MRF furnace? since acquiring through us, the result of an M&A source conference. Um, yeah. Think, do you know what that's referring to? I think I can interpret that. Yep, okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we actually found MRF, MRF stands for Material Research Furnaces. It's one of our companies. It's, it's based up in New Hampshire. And uh, in, I think it was the February of 2018, M&A source conference, then there was a class on how to sell a manufacturing company. And I thought I was gonna be uh, kind of uh, uh, shunned at the class, but I decided to go because I could learn how to buy a manufacturing company in such a class. Turns out I was kind of celebrated. I was, I was a little surprised by that, as, but I was the only buyer in the room. And uh, John Howe taught a very good uh, session that day on, uh, on, on how to sell the manufacturing company and then he called me up in, uh, in June of that year uh, with some information about MRF that he was selling in New Hampshire. Uh, that discussion went well and we closed in, in December of 2018, I'm delighted to say, and MRF is doing very, very well. Uh, I don't know, uh, I, I think I could credit that to John's uh, sort of straightforward honesty and uh, it had a lot to do with uh, us being able to get through the deal and I appreciated his contribution as, uh, as the inter intermediary very much. All right, thank you for that. 
and thank you for interpreting the question for me. Um, <laughs> next, we have a question that says, at some point in the future, cash flow runs out on the cash flow graph. How far out on the graph do you look and start to panic or not? Uh, boy, you know, uh, I've been in this situation a lot and I've felt that panic, but I've never actually felt, uh, I've never actually found that the panic helps. So, uh, you know, we do uh, weekly modeling out three months and then for the rest of a year by month for cash modeling. Uh, it does it does run out, particularly if you're not modeling any more sales than you already have in your backlog. In other words, you could put in uh, revenue that's expected and, and, and you won't necessarily run out. Uh, you, you, you'll see that maybe even continue to build depending on what your assumptions are. But that's the time frame we look at. Uh, is weekly for three months and then nine months of monthly data following that. You know, we're not really, um, we're not really uh, too worked up about how we do, how, how we shift that. Sometimes it's a calendar year, sometimes it's not. But, you know, you, you got to know where that cash is and the 90 days. In most of the business we work in, then uh, from uh, billing, you know, we can collect before 90 days. So we have a pretty good idea of incoming cash and that's the key that's the key to making that model under, you know understand that model okay thank you very much and i have some bubbles popping up as we're typing some questions if anybody else has questions you can submit them in the go um in the questions section um let me just browse the chat so while this, it looks like we have another question being typed in. While they're doing that, um, is there anything else, um, John, that you would like to add um, to add for the folks listening to me? Uh, well, before, well, John, what, I, well, I do have one question. Um, okay. You mentioned the the sales prep, and I feel like that was a pretty interesting part of the book. Um, can you can you go into a little bit more detail? Because I do feel like I. I rushed you through all the, the points, and if I had had a little bit more time, I would have anchored there for a second. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because that is, in my opinion, probably the most interesting or most applicable part to the audience here today. Yeah, it is. It, I'm trying to sneak in a bunch of operational stuff into your M, uh, you know, M&A webinar. But uh, right. that's just because I think that's part of what's useful. Those intermediaries, when they don't understand the operations, they're not as valuable. Uh, sure. So I, I would I would submit that for consideration that there is some usefulness to thinking about the operations, uh, and I can see the difference as a buyer on you know the folks who understand uh, understand the workings of the companies enough to describe it well, and the ones that don't. Um, and 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 there are plenty of non M and A source uh, intermediaries out there uh, that don't understand what they're doing. So um, you know we, it, it's not that hard to recognize. Uh, but what I split that into three areas what what I think is important for prep and th this is pretty brief stuff There's books written on this, which is why I didn't make it another book um, And and you know to be honest with you I, I think there's others that are more eloquent at this because they've done more deals I've done you know a dozen or so deals, but there's a lot of intermediaries in our audience today that have probably done 50 or 60 deals. I, I don't know how many um, uh, but uh, I have some ideas on prep and then uh, some notions on what types of buyers would be out there. And that, that's an area where I don't see a lot uh, in other resources of, you know, what are those other buyers and what are they thinking? 
And, you know, there, it's, some of it is, you know, just the simple ideas. Most industrial product companies uh, have a plant tour as a part of their, their uh, you know, their show for the buyers. What to think about for the plant tour, at least in terms of what I might think about. And, you know, there's a, I go through it very quickly, but, it, you know, it is uh, some, some data on how I think to try and uh, just the, the thought process of how do we, make ourselves look as as highest value we can, right? That intermediary's primary job is to increase the value in the in the overall uh, process, and, and that's, that's definitely a part of it. And, and the intermediaries, I think, understand the buyers, but I don't think the business owners that are selling understand the buyers. Uh, so that may be more for the, for the sellers. And then I had a, a, a piece on debt and equity because that's a common question that I get from business owners of, you know, could I could I do debt here, and would it make sense? And and I have a lot of you know just kind of frank discussions about the difference of debt and equity, and what uh, what that'll feel like, and look like, and 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 be like. Um, and and that I guess is uh, you know sort of equity in the broadest sense. Could be minority equity, could be a control sale. You know, all, all of those different things enter into how well people are able to get along. So uh, my goal is to create a transaction. Uh, our sellers are usually ongoing owners. Uh, sometimes they have an earnout. They're all to me. It's only a good transaction if we can both look back in five years and think it made sense. Because uh, you know, life is too short to fight the whole time. I, I want to figure out a way to get the deal done that makes sense. Um, you know, like like we did with John in New Hampshire. We we had to have some negotiations. We had to butt heads a little bit. Um, but you know, that's a normal process. I think, uh, luckily all the intermediaries have hard heads too, and we can all get along about it. Okay. Um, we have another question. Do you view lack of sales effort an advantage or disadvantage for the seller? Lack of sale for the, for this yeah. company's owner. Um, it does not specify. It just says lack of sales effort. I was going to say, I think the question might be, you know, if, if, a, if an owner has not that much sales effort, there's a pretty strong story to be said that with some marketing or sales effort, you know, you could boost sales post-transaction, um, as opposed to if you have a well-developed um, kind of sales element. Any thoughts on that? Um, I, I would always make it a well-developed sales effort, uh, either, either selling the company, selling products and services or selling the company. I think there's, there's two sales in the sort of broad view here of where the book tries to cover and both of them need, uh, thoughtfulness, I think on the, on the selling side, because neither, neither of those sa sales is, uh, is easy. Sure. Thank you for that. That seems to be our last question. Um, so I will send it back to you gentlemen for, for final thoughts and we will wrap up this wonderful webinar today. Great. Well, well thank you, um, John. Before I let you go though, do you have any other kind of comments um, you leave with our M&A pros or, um, you know, your your favorite book like I said there's a huge bibliography here 
if you had to highlight, you know, power ranks, um, would you give any favorites? I would. I would uh, choose traction and tiny habits. Uh, traction for running the company and tiny habits for running myself. Uh, that and the Miracle Morning literally changed how I look at my day and uh, was very, uh, very effective. I guess as a final thought, Lamar, I, I think it, it doesn't really matter. You know, even if people don't like what we say today, we know it's the start of college basketball season and everybody's going to be happy about that. Any predictions for UNC in closing? Oh, going all the way to the Final Four. I have no doubt about it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again for the time. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everyone at, at home or, or elsewhere at home in their office found this as useful as I did. But I, I really enjoyed the book and recommend everybody give it a glance because it's, it's a really good refresher of kind of the useful tools out there. And it's like most things. There's not a whole lot of complicated you know, elements to this, it's, it's just always great to kind of get someone to boil it down and succinctly talk about what matters in both running and, and selling businesses. So thanks again. Great. Thank you, Lamar. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for the M&A Source podcast. If you would like to learn more about M&A Source or would like to join, please visit M&A Source's website www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast.